Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. Joining me on this episode is one of Britain's leading broadcasters, a TV host, radio presenter, author, and the only one of my guests who's received a video message from Elvis Costello before dancing to one of his songs in front of millions of people. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Jeremy Vine. (laughs) Thank you, Stu. Oh, this is pure joy, talking about my favourite artist. Good. Well, I know you're a massive fan, so we had to get you on. And we will talk about your experiences as a fan and also some of your dealings with him over the years. I'm going to talk about some of your favourite songs of Elvis's as well. But perhaps we should begin by expanding on that dancing reference, particularly for our listeners outside of the UK. You were, I think it's fair to say, you were a huge audience favourite on the BBC Strictly (laughs) Come Dancing a few years ago. And a few weeks into it, you got to waltz, I think it was, to Elvis. Uh, yeah, I don't think the dance was ever formally identified, but I was told it was a waltz. But yeah, I was, I mean, it's a funny one because they knew that I loved Elvis and they picked the one song that I struggle with. I really struggle with the idea that if you click Elvis Costello on Spotify, the number one choice is going to be a song he didn't write when he's one of the this country's greatest songwriters in the last hundred years. So whenever I hear that, I come in uh, in a bit of a, f- a flush of anger. But anyway, I don't get to choose the music. So they gave me the song She. They then, they gave me this waltz. I was with the brilliant Karen Clifton, as she then was. She's now Karen Hauer. And and it, the, she didn't, I don't think, really knew much about Elvis Costello. So obviously I briefed her extensively on Elvis Costello and the importance that he that he plays in, in British rock music. And then the incredible thing was he sent me a message. And I think it was around the time his autobiography was coming out. So I think he, there was a reason why he might have wanted to be on Strictly. Yeah. But he, he just, I just remember he said, Jeremy, take no unnecessary risks. <laughs> I thought, oh, I think it's too late for that, mate. Yeah, yeah. And from a man who's made a career of taking risks in one form or another as well. I always remember when when they played it to you, it was quite endearing because you could hear you in the background saying, oh my God, he said my name. (laughs) That's true. I mean, yeah, I'm very starstruck with Elvis. I've interviewed him a few times. I've always messed it up. I remember last time I interviewed him was around that period where he had his autobiography out. And we, he had the time, you know, which is lovely. And he knows I'm a massive fan. And I got my camera into selfie video mode. And I said, look, come on, let's do a thing where I start singing one of your songs. And then I just tilt it. And, and you're there next to me. You're looking at me. And then you join in. So and you can imagine this situation where I start it and he's there. And I suddenly can't remember any of his songs. I mean, not even one. And I'm thinking, no, I know all of them. And the one I really wanted to do was Lipstick Vogue. You know, don't say you love yeah, me if yeah. it's just a rumour. Don't say a word if there is any doubt. Sometimes I think that love is just a tumour. You've got to cut it out. And I couldn't I couldn't even do that. And I just messed it up completely. And I'm still... I think that's the thing. When you meet your, your idols, you always mess it up. The awkward moment when the only song you could remember was She... <laughs> Oh, well, I wouldn't have, no, I wouldn't have gone for that. That would have been a terrible mistake. It's it's rather like the giveaway. When you say to someone at a party, you know, they say, who do you like? And I, I say Elvis Costello. And they say, oh, I love Elvis Costello. And I say, 
oh, really? What's, what's, you know, what songs you like? And go, Oliver's Army. But immediately, you know, they're not a fan. You know, if, if somebody says they love Van Morrison, their favorite song is Moondance, they're not a fan. So it's a great way of testing. As first mention of Oliver's Army, I'm out. Great song, don't get me wrong, but it's the one you choose if you don't understand what an incredible depth of work he's done. When did it all start for you with Elvis? When and how did you get into his music? Do you know, it's funny, Stu, I was thinking about this conversation as I, as I cycled home tonight, and I was thinking exactly that question. I was trying, and I have a very vivid memory of when it was. I was 11. I'm pretty sure I was 11 because we hadn't moved house, which we did when I was 12. And I was, and I had this radio battered, tiny little transistor radio, which was my connection with music. My parents weren't really into music at all. They missed the Beatles. You know, they, they just, it wasn't their thing. They just, they didn't like to go to church and stuff. Music was a very much a different world. So this music, this, I used to listen to Capital Radio in London. And at the time it was quite cutting edge and cool. And they put on watching the detectives. And I remember listening with this highly attenuated ear for the words, which I think is probably a bit of a thing that that I, I feel I'm now a bit um, unusual in in my the way I receive a song is often through the words. Whereas I, I notice with a lot of people, it's not really a part of it. So it was like watching for me at the age of eleven. It was like watching a movie. You know, she's filing her nails while they're dragging the lake. I always remember that thing. And the only other time I've I've felt this, I was. Four, and my mum put on the radio on a pop station, which was exceptionally unusual, and they played Space Oddity. And it really shocked me that the guy would leave the spacecraft and just leave radio contact and be adrift. As a four-year-old, I found it shocking. Now, that was 1969. Obviously, that was mm. Bowie's first big breakthrough hit. So I had the same experience with watching the detectives. And for that reason, I've always thought that, that Elvis lyrically is streets and streets ahead of almost anybody. And this morning, I know he always calls Joni Mitchell Joni because he, he feels so close to her. But I was listening to Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell, which is the famous, they pay paradise, put up a parking lot. And I only realized today why it's called that because there's one line in it where she sings, today, I think she's a child and a big yellow taxi came and took my dad away. Hmm. The screen door slammed and a big yellow taxi came and took my dad away. I thought, well, how have I never noticed that line? That's an incredible line. And, it, you know, that weaving of, so the, the phrase screen door slams takes me to Thunder Row, which is the, the first three words, screen door slams, Mary's dress sways, like a vision she dances across the floor as the radio plays and across the porch. So, I, you know, I, I hear songs as words and I think that's why I love Elvis because he... Rather like they say with Shakespeare, he used double the number of words. That's what Elvis does. But it's more than that. It's, it's double, the, the double the amount of meaning is what you're really getting from an Elvis song. And today when I was, I was cycling in thinking of God, I've got to, I've got to show, show Willing here for your podcast. I've got to remember where it started. And I remember wanting to be a journalist and listening to Armed Forces, the LP, and the song Green Shirt which says there's a smart young woman on a light blue screen comes into my house every night. She takes all the red, yellows, oranges and greens and she turns them into black and white. And that is journalism. That's mm. the profession I'm in now. That's, that's an incredible line. Mm -hmm. Well, the one from watching the detectives, um, uh, she's filing the nails while they're dragging the lake. I don't think there's another lyric that has 
captured a character so clearly in a song in so few words because it just yeah. gives you all of that detachment and that insouciance of that character, doesn't it? It's incredible yeah. detail. It's amazing. And of course, with rather like with Less Than Zero um, as well, it's a similar thing where he's he's painting a portrait of characters who are watching something shocking on TV. They're slightly removed from it. Um and it's it's very mysterious. I mean, I literally will have heard that song 2,000 times and mm. I'm still not really at the end of understanding it. You know, nice. And of course, the other thing is, in the, you know, way back when, way before you were born, Stu, when I was listening to music, you couldn't find lyrics. I've just looked up some mm. lyrics on my, on my uh, little iPad here. I can do that now. But back in the day, you had to guess at what he was singing. So, nice girls, not one with lipstick, cellophane, shrink wrap, so correct. Red dogs under illegal legs. Oh, what is it? Red dogs under illegal legs? I, I never understood that. I still don't mm. understand it. I had a funny experience with Prefab Sprout, Bonnie, where it's he sings, Paddy McAloon sings, All My Life in a Tower of Foil. And I always thought one day, I'm fine, it sounds like All My Life in a Tower of Foil. One day I'll look it up and find out what he's actually singing. I looked it up last week and he's singing All My Life in a Tower of Foil. So <laughs> that was the, what a great life. But yeah, but with the Elvis, I've got mangled words in my mind because I never was able to see the lyrics back in the day. But it still means so much to me. It really means so much. And it, on, you know, Night Rally on that um, incredible second LP where, you know, um, you've got people wearing 3D glasses at this rally and they're doing something to a chicken and you're thinking, okay, we're in Trump territory here. It's amazing. How did he decide to cover a fascist rally in a, in a three-minute song? It's incredible. And that's one of those songs, a bit like one of your choices today, actually, that's just come round again and you hear that and you think, that's not 1978, that's 2020, that song. Yeah, I would send out, I'm just trying to remember, you're getting testing my memory, send out, for something, but there's someone on the signal wire and the corporation logo is flashing on and off in the sky. Oh my God, yeah. that's such a line. Yeah. What was the first one you bought? I've got some lovely singles. I mean, I, I, I got, because of course, in the back in the day, there were B-sides and the B-sides, songs like Tiny Steps, um, not Shoes Without Heels. I don't think that was a B-side, but Big Tears, another one. Yeah. Yeah. So so they were on the back. So the, the singles would be things like Acc Accidents Will Happen, of course. And I did. So the very first one, oh, that's, that probably was, um, I wouldn't have bought Alison. I was too young. I was slightly got into that LP a couple of years later after it came out. Um I think it probably was actually accidents will happen, you know. Right. Um, so, oh, I just don't know where to begin. What a song that is. Well, you know, and it frustrates me when I play somebody a song like that and they don't quite get it. They don't see why it's different, why he's doing stuff nobody else has done. If you, you've got to, I mean, to, to see anyone with that lyrical power, you've got to go to Van Morrison. I'm not sure who else, really. I really, I suppose... David Byrne, Talking Heads, maybe, but they, but he's much more surreal. Yeah, I don't know. There's nobody like him. Hmm. 
let's talk about some of the songs that you've picked out for us for our playlist. Um, we've got a new playlist for the second season of the podcast. And funnily enough, you've mentioned the name that we've given to this playlist because we've called it Dragging the Lake, and you can find it on Spotify. The rules are the same as in the first season, though. Each guest picks five Costello songs, one from the 1970s, one from the 80s, one from the 90s, one from the noughties, and one from 2010 up to the present day. And Maybe we'll dwell on how strictly you've adhered to those rules a bit later on as we go through your choices. Um, but the first song on the playlist, Jeremy, is your pick of a 1970s Elvis Costello track. Yeah, I've chosen Little Triggers. It's very tempting to go back to the first album just because it was, even though he didn't have the attractions, it was, you listen now and you can hear the talent coming into fruition. But I think the second album, no exaggeration, is the greatest rock album made in rock history. That's it. So it's the, the album is called um, This Year's Model. I get confused because there's a track on it called This Year's Girl, which is an incredible yeah. track. But But the track I've chosen as my 70s choice, is called Little Triggers. Because what I think Elvis does really, really well is real bitterness and up-close and personal emotional dislocation. So this song I've heard a thousand times, Little Triggers That You Pull With Your Tongue, Little Triggers. I don't want to get hung up, strung up, when you don't call up, little sniggers, a lot little sniggers on your lips. Um, I don't know. I just he, you just feel it, you know. And what was funny was in my um, on my commute on my bicycle, I listen to Audible books now, right? Because I've I've got behind with my reading, and I've suddenly worked out if I have Audible books, I can then get through a lot. So I've been getting through the classics and I listened to Middlemarch, which is a classic by, is it George Eliot? I can't remember. Anyway, suddenly a character from this book in the 1800s says, little triggers that you pull with your tongue. And I'm thinking, oh no, what? <laughs> How did I never know that that, that Elvis line was, was ripped out of this sort of uh, cobbles and bonnets <laughs> romance from back when? And I just realised, okay, he was posing as a punk but he was already so literate. Yeah. And uh, I remember he said, you know, we're, ne we're not having any, we're banning guitar solos. That really appealed right. to me as a teenager. So on that album, you've got, you've got bizarrely, the only solo really is a bass solo in Lipstick Vogue. But um, that is as close as you get to an Elvis love song in the early days. And it's so bitter. Yeah. Recorded with the attractions at Eden Studios in London and then released on this year's model in March 78. You mentioned the lyrical inspiration. Musically, he said that he was influenced by Pete Wingfield's 18 with a bullet and Iggy Pop's Turn Blue. And then 
he also was having a liaison that he shouldn't have been having and that and that ultimately led to uh, to creating the song and i suppose on the album it serves an important purpose on the album because it's the first time that the tempo drops from all of those full-blooded rushes at the gates of hell as the melody maker called them in the early days here's a ballad i'm just i'm only pausing because my, my love come, come on in darling that's so kind of you my daughter's made this is not being, it's not, we just come say hi to Stu here. We're doing an Elvis Costello podcast. Hello. Hi, how are she's you? She's brought me, she's brought me a cup of tea, sorry. Um, oh, sorry. sorry. Thank you, darling. Oh, so, oh, having daughters, I recommend it. Thank you, love. Um, so, absolutely, heard what you said, that, that sorry to overlap here. Um, first drop in temper. Yeah, completely. Actually, funny enough, I just pulled the lyrics out to just just make sure I've got this right. And there's a couple of interesting things. I mean, Little Trigger's My Hand on Your Hip is, there's other Elvis songs where it's all about the body and it's the body's kind of threatening, you know? Mm. So I don't like you walking around with physical jerks on the same hour as a wonderful Living in paradise, yeah. Yeah, yes. And then thinking all about the censored sequences, worrying about the consequences, waiting until I come to my senses, better put it all in present tenses. He does that a lot. He uses that thing where he hooks each word at the end of a line to the next line. So he does it in Pump It Up. He does it in This Year's Girl. And this is a very mature writer who probably when he wrote this was barely 20. Mm. And from the band's point of view, I think Elvis has said he doesn't think there was anyone among that 1977 era groups who could have performed this song at that time. I suppose they'd been doing that from as soon as the attractions got together and they're doing things like, I just don't know what to do with myself on the Stiffs tour. They always had a little bit of something different about them, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the he did a brilliant thing. So in punk, what I remember, I mean, God, to be there when punk hit, I was 12 in 77. It was astonishing that there was a band even called the Sex Pistols and they had a song called God Save the Queen. And the first line was God Save the Queen and her fascist regime. And then it went to the top of the charts and then it was banned. I mean, it was like all the bells coming up on the fruit machine at the same moment. It was perfect for, for anyone entering their teenage years. This was it. And what I think, and, and at the time, if you listen to the charts, and I listened every single week religiously to everything, and it was the angelic upstarts, and it was the sound of the suburbs. And, and the key defining thing about punk is that it was non-corporate and the instruments didn't matter and it was suddenly democratic. So you get into your garage and you just buy a guitar and you just thrash it and you were angry. And the, yeah, I suppose the classic would be The Damned or something. You know, they, there wasn't a lot of musical talent there, but the power and the energy was incredible. What's interesting about Elvis is that he saw that and he pulled back a bit from it. And he said, no, I'm going to the Royal College of Music for my keyboard player. And I'm getting a guy who's been a technically brilliant drummer from a blues band. Is it the Red Hot Chilies or something? What were they called? Bruce Thomas, a phenomenal bass player. So he put together a band which had a classical level of musical ability. And he was able to play better. You know, mm. and that it is as simple as that. So when I've, I've seen him, I don't know, 20 times in concert, but even in the early days when I saw him in the early 80s, that band was just streets ahead. So I think he was very prescient about that, realising that to communicate what he wanted to do, he needed a proper musical register. So I, I'm full of aberration. I mean, it's always, you know, I think he, 
obviously things happened with the band that were unfortunate. Bruce Thomas annoyed him. And I think that's very sad that they fell out. And then Steve Naive, I think he's got a real soft spot for because the last time I saw him play, it was him and Steve. And and he, he clearly thinks that Steve interprets his songs beautifully. And I agree. You know, if you listen to Shot With His Own Gun on, on Trust, that's really Steve Naive doing doing the keyboard that makes that song. Mm-hmm. So what were your earliest experiences of watching Elvis and the Attractions? Which tours were you getting to at that time? Well, I was square. So I didn't, my first thought on hearing Washington Detectives age 11, sadly, wasn't, I've got to go and see him live. I lived in Cheam, gigs were in London, London was a world away. And for that reason, I've got a series of you know, because I, I mean, listen, my, I love my mum and dad dearly and 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 I would never sort of uh, criticise them for this. But, but you know, the modern parent, if my daughter says she likes Taylor Swift, the first thought her dad is, has is, OK, let's get it. Let's get the newspaper and see when Taylor Swift's playing. And I'm going to take you. Now, back in the day, music was much more about argument with your parents. So you the only reason you like bands is because they annoyed your mum and dad. So I would never be as a young teenager, 12, 13, facilitated to go to a gig because, you know, genuinely, my parents found this stuff actually frightening. So it was only really when I got to about 16, 17 that I I got to see him and I saw him on the um, Punch the Clock tour. I think maybe Jimmy Nail was playing as part of that, actually, funny, amazingly, because I've seen that on on screen. Um, And I saw him at the Hammersmith Palais or whatever and... Yeah, it was every bit as good as and amazing as I'd hoped and I thought it would be. And it was, it was sort of every day I write the book time of his career. And I can't, I don't think I've seen a, a better gig than the one I saw probably three years, well, no, maybe 86, 87, went to see him in Newcastle and he just had Blood and Chocolate out and he still had the anger and, and the attractions were there. And it was just perfect. It was just brilliant. Mm. And I was, when you actually click with an artist in their time and you see them play the album they've just brought out and you love every track, that's amazing. Because when you think about it, for someone like me, I, this is a slight derailment here, but in 1979, when I was 14, I suddenly got David Bowie. So I got this album, Lodger, which was a bizarre album, the third of his Berlin albums. I totally got it. I got Bowie. And I then worked my way through for all of the albums through the first two slightly strange ones, Space Oddity and The Man Who Sold the World, and then Hunky Dory and Low and Station to Station. And I, I became just drenched in Bowie. And I mean, loved him so much and the music and everything, I totally got him. And then bang, in 1980, he brought out Ashes to Ashes and Scary Monsters. And, and then I was, I was just, I just thought this is the greatest artist ever. However, the problem with Bowie is that he was not very easy to go and see at any of those periods. He really only came on stream live for someone like me when he did Let's Dance, at which point he sort of became a conventional pop star. So I never saw Bowie. So I feel very lucky that the the number one artist in my life is somebody I've seen so many times. And I'm very grateful to Elvis. I don't know if he's ever going to listen to this. I'd love it if he did. But the fact that he's properly worked, you know, he hasn't. Bowie went to Switzerland and hid away a bit, I understand, for his own reasons. But Elvis really put the hours in to play music for his fans. And I'm I'm so grateful because one day, you know, if he's gone, I'll think, shit, I actually saw the guy. 
And I saw him at the moment where he was playing the album that he just brought out that I loved. And yeah. they, that's quite unusual as well. Yeah, yeah. Just as a slight detour, would it have been around this period that you were gigging yourself with your own band? <laughs> well, we had a, a kind of a silly band. My brother, who's the comedian Tim Vine, and another friend called Simon Williams and Sheen, we thought we all wanted to be pop stars. That's what you do when you're 16. We failed to be like the jam. We wanted to be a band like the jam or Elvis or whatever. In fact, we played a bit with a guy called John Hillman, who I remember had such a great musical sensibility, but he he did have a lot of Elvis Costello little touches in his songs. I mean, that's how influential Elvis was. But anyway, we, we decided this isn't going to work. You know, everyone wants to be like the jam. So we just did a sort of a ridiculous band called the Flared Generation, where we just wore essentially enormous flared trousers and said, this is Cheem's attempt to be a fashionable punk band. And of course, it's misfired disastrously because Cheem is so unfashionable. And the, the lesson, I suppose, was... And all our songs were about flares and sensible shoes. And we sang a song about university sweatshirts and various other unfashionable <laughs> things. But the, the key lesson for us was that the suddenly everyone wanted us to be doing stuff for them. We, so we were on TV, we're on Radio One, we were in the Sun newspaper, we're in the oh, Smash really? Hits magazine. Yeah. And I suddenly, that was a great lesson of journalism. That the thing people go for is the thing that is incongruous. You know, mm. we were... So that the, when we did our version of the jam, that was Dog Bites Man. But when we did our band called The Flare Generation, that was Man Bites Dog. And that was the story. But of course, that stuff is only novelty. It's not, it doesn't, it's yeah. never going to be a runner, you know. Hmm. Let's go back to our playlist and the 1980s Elvis Costello song that you've chosen. This was from the album Get Happy, released in February 1980, and it's Riot Act. What an interesting song. First, got to say, brilliant LP. Elvis mm. decided he moved the groove so close to each other that they'd said, technically, this LP might not play. Because <laughs> he said, I want to do 20 songs like they did in the olden days, like he did in Motown or whatever. I just want to do song after song after song. So you see the artist, I think this is his third album, isn't it? Am I right? Hang on a minute. It uh, goes, fourth album. So it's After Trust, is that right? No, My Aim is True. This year's model, Armed Forces, yeah. and then this one, so number four. Oh, okay, and then Trust is next. Yeah. Um, so, it, and the beautiful songs on it, Clown Time is Over, Possession, King Horse, Man Called Uncle, it just goes on. There's barely a bad track on it. I don't like Five Gears in Reverse. That's the only one I don't like. Oh, really? Um, right. No, I don't. It's just, just a racket. Um Songs by Elvis I don't like, are quite, it's quite an interesting category. I don't like Luxembourg on Trust because it sounds like a racket as well. But there's, with Riot Act, as I understand it, he'd had a big bust up in America where he'd, he'd allegedly said something racist about Ray Charles or something, I don't even know. And essentially he felt a, a, a deep need to explain himself and not even to apologise. I'm not even sure that he'd done that much wrong because it's all clouded in a kind of drunken argument. But being Elvis, 
he can do it with so much nuance that you never, it took me about 10 years to work out what he was saying in his song. So he says forever doesn't mean forever anymore. I said forever, but it doesn't look like I'm going to be around much anymore. So I think he's facing the end of his, his career at this point. And he says when the heat gets so tropical and the talk gets so topical, there he is rhyming the end of the lines again. Um, you could, you, and it's basically, you read me the riot act. You can make me a matter of fact or a villain in a million. No slip of the tongue is going to keep me civilian. He's obviously, he's in a kind of a trauma about what he said um, and what he's done. And I find, I, I realize now he, he's in deep pain. And, and he says, he said, trying to be so bad is bad enough. And I think, oh, God, that's such an Elvis line. He's obviously, he's got this image of being the hardened, gritty, aggressive punk rocker. And he says, come on, it's difficult enough to be like this without you trying to paint me as bad as well. Mm-hmm. It's just lyrically so, so brilliant. It's brilliant. I just, I just, I just love it. I don't, I, maybe my analysis of it is wrong, but the fact that you can sit with these words for ages and look at them so many different ways, I think is incredible. I always take it as his response to the Ohio incident as we come to describe it. But that line that you mentioned, it doesn't look like I'm going to be around much anymore, is one that I always used to take as being him talking about his musical career. And that's the jeopardy that he's put himself into with that incident in Columbus. But then when he brought out the book, he was talking about this period and he said, that evening may very well have saved my sorry life. I fear an obituary might have appeared not too much later. So in that context, it doesn't look like I'm going to be around much anymore. Seems to go beyond just his musical career. Yeah, yeah. I, that's that's very interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, there's, there's a line in it where he says uh, something like, I got... Sh- your letter. Now they say that I don't care for the color that it paints me. So let you know, untangle that. Okay, I don't care for the color that it paints me. It paints me black. I don't care for the color black. And that's such a that's as direct as you're ever going to get from him. But what a clever way of saying it without ever saying it. He's educated me. Bowie's done this as well about what you might call black music or soul music. Um, there is a line in a song. Um, now, you'll tell me which song this is. Somewhere in the distance I can hear who shot Sam. Motel Matches. Motel Matches, which is a fantastic song on Get Happy. It is my conviction that I am an innocent man. I'm sorry for my singing my lack of notes, but I find it's therapeutic <laughs> to do it. Now, I, so I look it up. Somewhere in the distance, I... So when I when I heard the song in my lyric-free years, I thought it was somewhere in the distance I can hear two shots sound. Actually, it's somewhere in the distance I can hear who shot Sam. So I look up, what is this who shot Sam? And who shot, shot Sam is a soul record, I think, from the 60s. And it, I don't even know who did it. I can't remember. So I then end up listening to different versions of it. You know, I think that's so educational. It's so good for me to do that, to take one artist and, and sort of Google spider away into other songs. This is Dangerous Amusements, a podcast with a suitcase of phony wisdom to dispense. You mentioned before that you've obviously interviewed him a few times and you had that little series going back, it must be quite a few years ago now, in the 2000s when you met, well, it was a really cool series actually because I think you did Debbie Harry as well in the same yeah. series, if I remember rightly. Uh, but you got to do Elvis as part of that as well. So what have those experiences been like for you as a fan? 
There, I think, I think I always feel that once I remember when I was working on the Today program in my twenties, and I was, and I, there was an article that we, I was doing an item which required. I thought the person I need for this is Brian Ferry, and I rang his agent and I said, "Is there any way I could go and get a line from Brian Ferry about this thing?" And um, he, I, I, I could tell from the agent's voice that it sounded like the kind of thing that Brian Ferry might say yes to. And the agent said, um, he's not that free today. He's only got about half an hour in the afternoon. So I thought, listen, I'll be less than five minutes. I'll literally record it with him on the doorstep. And the agent said, well, he's just come back from Japan. He's quite tired. And then I said, um, I'm a massive fan. And the agent said, no, I'm sorry, not going to be able to do it. And I thought, ah, oh, yeah, that's when I blew it is I said, I'm a massive fan, because at that point, it's work for Brian. And it's a bit like that with Elvis. Uh, once I say, that song, Green Shirt, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like he thinks, oh, God, okay, I'm, I'm now in the room with a fan. And then mm. it's harder. So I'm, I'm conscious that I'm burdening him a little bit if I come with fandom. So I try to just be professional. And, and you know, I feel like these, these people who've done a thousand interviews, they want to do it professionally and efficiently um the one i did that you mentioned was called jeremy vine meets it was a series that bob geldof's production company had put together so it was geldof and debbie harry and so on and lionel richie was lovely and and yes and elvis and the, the the moment i remember it from it he said look tell me what you think of this and he went to this piano and he just started playing this song he was writing and i was thinking this is incredible. I'm just, what am I going to say? Uh, yeah, I think you need to move that note a bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was, it was just an incredible experience, you know, what's great, you know, about, about Elvis is this, that I think he is, he's a proper artist. There's no question. He's not really a pop star in that sense. I think he had a moment. Oliver's army was number two. That was the moment. Mm. But at the same time, he's, my impression is he's, he's made a lot of money and he's been, commercially successful in the sense that he doesn't have to worry about his mortgage. And there are a lot of bands where I grieve for the unfairness perpetrated on them. And I'll give you an example. There's a band in about 1978, 79, 80 called Magazine, led by a guy called Howard Devoto. And if you don't know them, you should, I really recommend their album, The Correct Use of Soap. And they put so much into their music. I mean, they have got st still a strong following. And I don't think they made anything out of it. And I'm really glad that Elvis not just made a life, but is now regarded as one of the great artists. No question. Mm -hmm. And that has given him a status where he's gone on to collaborate with some other great artists. And one of them is someone who worked with on your next song choice, which was from the 1990s. And this was one of the tracks from Painted From Memory, which you worked on with Burt Bacharach, released in September 1998. And the song that you chose from that album was The Sweetest Punch. You dropped the band, I can't understand it Not after all we've been through Words start to fly out of my glass jar And I will find one to walk right into You knocked me down It was the sweetest punch The bell goes Well, you know that if you asked me five songs from the first two years of his career, it would have been easier because when, because the, the, the artists do have artistic sag in their career. Um, Elvis is in the very rare category of, and Bowie is in this as well, of having released 12 great albums, truly great albums on the trot. 
I mean, I just was talking to somebody who's involved with the music industry recently, and they said that record companies are now doing not one album deals with artists, they're doing one song deals. Can you imagine? So in those days, it was lucky for Elvis and Bowie and others that once they were on board, they had a bit of commitment and they were grown as artists. And there are moments when I, I, you know, an Elvis album came out and I didn't make an effort to hear it. I'm ashamed to say, because I... I felt he was, as they say in um, boxing, punching from memory. But with this, I this album stunned me how good it was. This came out, I was a South Africa correspondent. So I was based in Johannesburg for the BBC. I was in that phase. I always brought an album out with Burt Bacharach. You know, Burt Bacharach hadn't written a good song for quite a long time. What's he going to be like? But when I started to listen, I thought the chemistry between them was amazing because I think Backrack must have extended a little bit of Elvis's feel for melody and stuff. And Elvis gave the lyrics. And, and of course, in this one, we got the absolute classic Elvis. Um, Words start to fly. My glass jaw and I will find one to walk right into. This idea, the, the boxing thing, you walk into it with your glass jaw. Mm-hmm. Now, even the phrase glass jaw, is again we got body parts. There's a lot of fingers in Elvis songs. A lot of hips and hands and jaws and you know eyes and all that. Um, I don't know who else would ever use the two words glass jaw in a song ever. Yeah, you literally you might have to go through a thousand songs to find anything with that phrasing. But I just like it because at the same time it floats quite free of. It's, it's not you know it doesn't it doesn't demand you to do any work on it. It's basically we're having an argument, but I kind of. That's what it's about between us, and I'm happy with it. I'm happy the sweetest punch, you know. Even being hit by you is fine, you know. I just think he's it's it ends a bit tragically because if you're going, then you better go to him. And I thought, oh, is that Burt Bacharach putting that in? I don't know, but he but he he's using his classic thing. Elvis is that he goes with an analogy. So with this is boxing. There's a bell ringing. Then you know I hear it ringing. I didn't see it coming. Did I? He's. All, I, I wonder what Burt Bacharach said. Oh, I like what you're doing there. Yeah, can we put some glove boxing gloves in there? Or I don't know. I just. I think it's a very good album, and I think for anyone who needs an introduction to Elvis, it's almost a starter album. It's quite an easy album to listen to. Hmm. I think with this song, an extended metaphor like that over three, four, five minutes of a relationship being like a bout of boxing, that could end up very clunky in the wrong hands, couldn't it? But actually, it works really well. And as you say, that even comes across musically as well, because the arrangement has almost that peeling of bells, doesn't it? As though it was the end of each round, which is, yes. again, it's but it's subtle. It doesn't hit you over the head with it. No, and he's been, because his wordplay was so intense, I remember him starting to get criticised in the early days for, for going too far with it. I never thought that. I nothing. I don't think I've ever heard a line in any of his songs that are jarred in all the hundreds of songs I've listened to. Whereas, you know, I think about, I listen to the Human League and they do, it took seconds of your life to take his life. It took seconds. I think, oh God, is that, that's a terrible line about JFK. Whereas, whereas Elvis does does avoid that the calamitous line that jars. However, I have been aware of criticism of his wordplay in the past. So I remember reading a, a review of, uh, must have been Get Happy, you know, 30 years ago, and they said, God, the wordplay now. They, he's got the line, a wave of her hand could be so tidal. 
and they were mm. criticizing mm. him for that. But yeah, well, this is something about like, the the red, the blue corner that I painted myself into. I think, yeah, it's good. I like it. I like yeah. lyrics yeah. are hard. If you've ever, I tried to write songs, and I was, you know, with my brother and I, we tried to, you know, in our serious phase. Oh my goodness, it's so hard because you sort of want to write it like a map. You want to be precise, but if you do that, it's terrible. So then you write it bland, and then it's cheesy. So to yeah. be in the middle is an absolute art, and he does it every time. Yeah. Elvis and Bacharach first worked together on the track God Give Me Strength, which appeared in the 1996 Alison Anders movie Grace of My Heart. They reconvene a year later in Santa Monica and New York to write the rest of the songs that appeared on Painted From Memory. The album recorded in LA and released in September 1998. And I'm like you, and I've said this on a previous episode, I, I think this is such a sublime record. And on the right day and in the right mood, I... I could be tempted to say this is my favourite Elvis record. Wow, that's a big shout. Yeah, at that point in his career, to see him express himself through Burt Bacharach's keyboard work, I think it was so interesting. And of course, if if you look at Burt Bacharach's top 10 songs, you can't believe what he wrote with Hal David. Mm. It's just incredible. Raindrops Are Falling On My Head was him, you know. Do You Know The Way To San Jose? I mean, it goes on and on and probably I just don't know what to do with myself which Elvis has covered I think was Burt Bacharach so you know you've got an absolute class A songwriter there so I think I think yeah it's it it shocked me how good it was when it came out I thought I thought because you think if he started in 77 he's 20 years in how many artists have sustained songwriting for 20 years very few Mm -hmm. I'm always surprised it wasn't more of a commercial hit I think it only just troubled the top 40 in the UK. Uh, I I know critically it's adored, isn't it? You know, people love things like God Give Me Strength. They got a Grammy for I Still Have That Other Girl. So among his peers, this is regarded as a great piece of work. But commercially, it didn't didn't do that much. And you think it was probably around that time when Burt Bacharach-type music was having a bit of a revival, wasn't it? Andy Williams was sort of... I think that was in a commercial music to watch the girls go by. So that kind of light music from the 60s was gaining a little bit of traction. They appear together in um, Austin Powers, so there was quite a profile to what they were doing, but never quite made the breakthrough that it might have done commercially. It was a similar story with the... Was it with Alan Toussaint where he does The River yeah. Runs Through It? And again, commercially unsuccessful, but a a great combination. Yeah. And they played a small number of live shows. I don't know if if they were among the many Elvis shows you've seen over the years. I think they only did about half a dozen. I was away at the time in in Africa. Bizarrely, the the gig I went to there that I remember most was the Bee Gees, which is a, which is an incredible thing. They actually came and played, and I watched them. And, and you know that that again, that's an incredible songwriting outfit. But no, I didn't. I didn't see him in that period. And I'm trying to think when I when I next saw him. I think it was the next song choice, forty five. Bells are chiming for victory. There's a page back in history, 45. They came back to the world that they fought for. Didn't turn out just like they thought, 45. Here is the song to I saw him perform at the Royal Festival Hall. I remember thinking he still got it. And and I guess he was 45 at the time. 
Um, we may be going, we're not quite going back 20 years, but, but that sort of length of time. So, no, hang on, he can't be 65 yet. He's, how old is he now? Yeah, yeah, no, he's, he's past he? 65 now, yeah. Oh, my goodness, gosh. Um, so I saw him sing this and I just thought, oh, what a lovely, crisp reflection on where he is in his life. Because he must, I mean, obviously he was 45, but as he does, he made me think about that number differently because 45 is also the, the year 1945. It's also the speed a vinyl single performed at. So you say, oh, I've got a great 45. That's how, you know, that's how we would describe having a record, a single, as, as you know. So I just, I just, he, he got me with that song. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm seeing. So I would have been probably, I think I'm 10 years younger than him. So I would have been 35 then. And I just thought, I've caught him at a good moment in his career. It feels like he's in command of the agenda. When I saw him, it was funny. So it was Royal Festival Hall. And... And that's a bit, it's a little bit sort of upper end, but then he would always tend to play at places like that. And I was with his friend and I think we got tickets from his PR people or whatever. And afterwards they said to you, do you want to come back and meet Elvis? And my friend said, oh, I, said, oh, I don't really, I just wasn't into it. So I ended up wandering off. I'm thinking, well, what's just happened there? I don't want to go in. Jeremy's going to sing to him if we go backstage. No, well, that's, that was always be a danger. That's, that's very true. But the other funny thing was, when you go to these gigs, you often, and the classic example of this is Morrissey. If you go to see Morrissey, every single person at the gig will be a 55-year-old man, guaranteed, right? And New Order and all that. Um, a little bit similar with Elvis. I mean, he's never quite cracked the under-30 audience. And there was a bloke about my age who decided he was going to walk up to the front and start dancing. And he danced in the absolute dad dancing way. And then the security came and moved him back to his seat. It was just the tragedy of being 55 or 45 or whatever I was then, 35. And just that thing of, you can't do this anymore, sir. I'm afraid you're allowed to do it in 1980. You can't do it in 2000. You've got to watch sitting down. And it was, it was so undignified. Yeah. We described this one as the story of his life in three minutes. And as you say, it's kind of carving his life out in the grooves of a record. And again, that could have been quite sentimental and sickly in lesser hands. But it's a, it's a really interesting take on where he was at 45, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, things that are really searching about himself and his personal history are very interesting to me. And one of the things I realised from his autobiography was the role his father had played in giving him his musical taste and the fact that his father, as we know, was a band leader. And we, I know him from the R. Oh, White's Lemonade advert in the, in the 70s, which is quite a memorable, brilliant advert, actually. I mean, it's extraordinary that was his dad. And, and also, I think... There's a song called Suit of Lights on King of America, which is about his dad. And when, yeah, they, then they pull you out in your suit of lights. And it was about the idea that his dad was sort of forced to be this performer. He didn't really want to be in nightclubs and stuff at the end of, tail end of his career. Um, you know, and it's, it's quite a sad song. So autobiographical stuff about his life is of interest to me. One of the interesting things I think about 45 is the fact that he debuted it on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, like I think three years before it came out on the record. And I just think I can't imagine many other artists who would use a network TV opportunity to just go and workshop a song that no one has ever heard <laughs> before. It's incredible. It's true. But, but you know, the funny thing with, with Elvis, I find the rather really fetching thing for me as a fan 
is that he doesn't mind doing the songs we love because there's nothing worse than I'm going to play everything from my own new album. And you do get that. But I saw a, a Radio 4 in conversation with John Wilson, who's a massive fan like me, and he'd invited me to come and see it. And what I love was that when Elvis walked on with his guitar, he just played the lick from um, Watching the Detectives. Dun, 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 dun. And I thought, I love that he's not precious about it. He doesn't, because some people, like Paul Wellerby, an example, where, oh, I don't want to play that old stuff. You know, I want to play that stuff. He will not play it, but Elvis will. And I think that's, it's very important that Bruce Springsteen plays Born to Run. You've got to play Allison, and he does. Yeah, yeah. I meant to ask you, actually, you mentioned you kind of dropped off with a few records before Painted From Memory came out. Have you gone back and filled in the gaps since then, or do they remain a bit Yeah, of a... yes and no. I mean, The Delivery Man I've listened to quite a lot. North I've listened to a lot. I listen to them, but uh, it's, a, it's a classic, isn't it, where uh, it, it's not Elvis's fault, this. The thing is that when you're 17, your synapses are so powerful that the song that hits them is going to stay with you until you're six feet under. And I realise, that's why everyone who's 17 thinks the best music was made when they were 17. I think the best music was made in 1982. That's not because it was 1982, it's because I was 17. And, and um, I had this, I, I interviewed a brain surgeon recently, and I, he's, he's retired now. And he said, I said, what's your biggest regret? And he said, well, I did, he's very eccentric. I developed a way of operating on people where you take their skull off and they're still conscious and they and then I can see what I'm the effects of what I'm doing. And my biggest regret is that I didn't learn more poetry when I was younger because I see young brains and I see old brains and old brains are shrunken and they're calcified and young brains are so much better. And I thought, yeah, that's it. Accidents will happen and Oliver's Army and Green Shirt and all those songs possession um went into this young brain and they're still mm. so deep so i've got to accept that however good north is or the delivery man or or um the brodsky quartet or whatever it's never going to hit me quite as deep as those early albums it just won't mm. let's move on to your final song choice that you've added onto our playlist this comes from anything between 2010 up to the present day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, we've had to consult the Dangerous Amusements arbitration panel for this one. They're okay. set up in, in Stockley Park with all of their videos and <laughs> assessing all of the songs that come in from my guests to see if we can accept this one because you've gone for a song that, you know, frankly isn't from that decade or even from that millennium. Um, and the reason we're going to allow this one is because you got it as a reissue in this decade. But also, I think the clincher is that the music from this track was later reused in the 2010s as the basis for Tripwire on Wise Up Ghosts. So we've got a very tenuous, convoluted reason for accepting this one. Future <laughs> guests don't think you'll be getting away with this as well. But the song that you went for, Jeremy, you dug back into Satellite from Spike. She looked like she learned to dance From a series of still pictures She's madly excited She throws her hands up How does he do it? You know, it, and it's not even, I don't even associate it with Spike. So I think this piece of music floats free. Um, 
there's all kinds of songs that come together. There's one called Red Sails in the Sunset. Again, an incredible yeah. song which has never been properly showcased, I don't think. Red Sails in the Sunset, white noise going clackety-clack. All the money in the world is never going to bring your buddy back. But Satellite is another one of those where it's never been properly part of the oeuvre. You know? So I, I felt I could regard it as almost undated here. This is why I allowed it to pop up. <laughs> um, and the Satellite looks down you know, from above. Um, and it's sort of, it's this permanence of love, I suppose, that you can see love from space. That's what it means to me. And I know there was a time in my life I was kind of very emotionally upset about something. And I, and I, this song came to me again and again. I used to work at Westminster and I used to walk to work and I was just singing it again and again and again to myself. The satellite looks down Right now. You know, to me, what's amazing about it is that he almost throws some of these gems onto the pavement. I mean, you know, if you listen to, let's think, um, well, Shoes Without Heels is a good example. That song is, is, is not even a B-side. It's just throwaway. But it's a gem. So, I'm in a way, I'm picking Satellite because I, I think it's really offbeat. And it's it's so Elvis, it's so profound, and um, I think in you know uh, the reason I'm I'm very grateful to the VR VAR unit that you've got <laughs> on it, but of course what they need to understand is that this music is timeless. So I could choose Satellite in a hundred years' time, and it would still be a great song. We'll have to see what they think for future guests. Coming <laughs> <up>. <laughs> I don't want to cause any trouble with your other guests. <laughs> this one. Recorded for Spike, released in February 1989, we get Chrissy Hind on the backing vocals. And we talked about Burt Bacharach earlier, and it was actually a session for this song when Elvis and Burt first met. They both happened to be sharing Ocean Way Studios in LA, and Elvis invites Burt into the into the studio as they're doing the mix on this one. Um, yeah, I love this song as well, regardless of it not quite fitting in this decade. But I think it's it's another great opening line, isn't it? She looked like she learned to dance from a series of still pictures. <laughs> she looked like she learned to dance from a series. I, I, do you know what? I'd never quite identified that. She looked like she learned to dance from a series of still pictures. She's madly excited now. She throws her hands up like a tulip. She looks like an illustration of a cocktail party where cartoon bubbles burst in the air. Champagne rolls off her tongue like a second language and it should have been her biggest night. The satellite looks down on her as she begins to cry. All over the world at the very same time, people sharing the same sorrow. As the satellite looks down, her darkest hour is somebody's bright tomorrow. Crikey. He pulled on a cigarette in the crook of his first finger. There we go again. Always physiology, anatomy. Felt the static electric charge of her perfect hourglass figure. Golly. It's, I, and it's just, about, it's just about the fact that it's all visible from space and we're all sharing the same thing and we're all going through the same thing. I think it's an amazing song. And it's just a throat to him. This would this could be a lifetime's work for somebody, this song, but to him it's just something you did on a Tuesday morning. Yeah. I always think it's quite prescient as well, isn't it? He's, he's referring to the satellite being like a deity in the sky, and that's essentially come true, I guess. Yeah. It's funny how 
because of the era that pop music started in, that, that electricity and tech became quite a big thing for a while. So the classic being orchestral maneuvers in the dark, the band have a song called Electricity as if that's the future. And, you know, and then that's all sort of past now. We're back in the, we're in the post-satellite era now where we're celebrating allotments and grass, you know. Mm. Um, so this is a little bit of its time, I know. But it's all, it's all about how tech sees everything. I don't know. I just, it's its very hard to pin it down why I love it. And I think it, in, in this conversation, although I've gone a bundle on the lyrics, we shouldn't underestimate the power of the music and the melody and the fact that even if you look, and I don't know if I played guitar, I'd be able to do that thing with my, with my left hand where I show you the guitar chords for Alison. But that song right at the start of his career, which apparently he was 17 when he wrote, goes to a very strange place in, in terms of its chord sequence. Alison, I know this world is killing you. Alison, my aim is true. And above all, like Bowie, who's often said, oh, Bowie's, you know, he's great because he's a fashion icon and he's this and he's that. No, Bowie's great because he writes great tunes. And I know that sounds like Alan Partridge, but the same with Elvis. My God, the tunes are brilliant. And I, I think... We shouldn't forget that. I mean, that's what puts him above Van Morrison for me, is that it's just that he he's harnessed pop and something deeper. Well, this song's a good example, isn't it? That he still sees the value in the musical accompaniment to Satellite when he comes to do Wise Up Ghost. How many years later is that? 25 years later? And he still sees the value in the music that he can adapt that to a new song that he's got and say something completely fresh again. Yes, and and... There's songs where you see him work, taking a part of a song. There was a song called Clean Money, which he took and he turned it into Love for Tender, I think. And he'll take the end of a song and stick it somewhere else. And, you know, I can see he's constantly pocketing stuff and reworking it. I mean, I, I, how these guys work is something we should probably never even ask them about because it takes all the fun away when Bowie says, oh, I'd use the scissors technique. I think of one phrase and then I just jumble it up with another phrase and it doesn't mean anything. I don't want to be told your songs don't mean anything. But Phil Collins said, oh, we just go la, 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 la. And then somebody said, I thought you were singing something happened on the way to heaven. And that's, I, I don't want to know that. I need to know there's a purpose here. and There's a reason he's writing it. And I think with Elvis, I really believe he's on a mission of some kind. I think he's actually trying to, he's trying to tell us something very profound. And it's taken him, you know, 40 albums to do it. And we're still listening. Jeremy, it's been great chatting to you. Thanks very much for coming on and uh, really enjoyed listening to your song choices. Well, thanks for giving me the chance. It's, a, it's wonderful to meet a fellow fan, so I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Well, thank you, Jeremy. You can find him on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as The Jeremy Vine. We're on there too. Search for Dangerous Amusements. You can find our playlist on Spotify. That's called Dragging the Lake. Our season one playlist is on there too, entitled Dangerous Amusements. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to leave us a positive rating and review, that would be very much appreciated. Our theme music is performed by Gary Mulcahy. You've been listening to Dangerous Amusements. Go on your merry way now, if you must.